Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the NYC Real Estate Podcast. This is episode number 40. If you've been listening throughout the whole way, we've taken a little bit of a hiatus, but we are back um, with Michael Lifland and Paul Eisenberg, and they are the owners of RCG Tower Group. Hey, guys. How are you? Morning. Good. Good. Um, if before we get into you, if you want to reach out to the podcast, feel free to email us at NYC real estate podcast at gmail.com. Again, that's NYC real estate podcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on social media at NYC real estate podcast, and we are all over. So if you could listen to this, share it, subscribe, uh, that would be so amazing for us. So RCG Tower Group, we deal with a lot of residential and commercial real estate issues. You guys are on the outside of this in terms of location. You're on the rooftops. And uh, we're really wanting to dial in today with you on wireless rooftop communications, which you guys have um, been dealing with for a very long time. I know, Michael, we've known each other for a long time and we've been circling uh, the industry together for quite a lot of years. But before we jump there, let me reach out to Paul and you can give us the background on yourself and on RCG Tower Group, and then we'll jump over to Michael. Thank you, Mark. Um, uh, we are, or I am, a uh, second generation wireless telecom uh, entrepreneur. And um, the business started, RCG Tower Group started its iteration as actually repeater communications um, when my father returned from Vietnam in 1968. He was running telephone calls back and forth uh, from Vietnam to the States and bridging them wirelessly um, in the field there. And on top of that, he was a ham radio operator. So he really enjoyed wireless and it was his passion. So when he came back, he said, I I'm going to give it a go and make this uh, my, my calling, my business. And started a business in New York City that became what's called the largest ESMR, um, you know, fast forwarding into the 80s. And ESMR is an uh, enhanced specialized mobile radio provider. Uh, where we build networks for people to talk on two-way radios. It was, you know, walk, old school walkie-talkies or mobile radios in a truck. Yeah. And we put antennas up on rooftops and let people talk wide area on those networks prior to cell phone networks being around. Um, so it was more business-to-business -business commercial grade radio. Um, we kind of moved forward into the mid-80s when we had this large sales and service business and this ESMR business um, where... Um, a company came along and they were looking at all these ESMRs around the country to aggregate them and make a large network of push to talk radios that could speak to coast to coast, kind of based on cellular. And that was Nextel or the predecessor, predecessor to Nextel Fleet Call. So our network in New York City became the foundation network for Nextel in New York metro area. Um, we Merged, well, we sold off to them, but we retained FCC licenses, which we had. We retained our rooftop real estate. Um, we were one of the only SMRs in the country that Nextel said, we need the sales and service business. We need to plant the flag in New York City and make ourselves known. Um, so that was very nice. And then we went back in and actually after non-competes were up with that, built um, more two-way radio networks. But on top of that, it was always very interesting to have the wireless rooftop real estate because that allowed other customers or other people like Repeater at that time to put antennas up on their network, uh, up on those uh, rooftops. And we were the folks that worked with between the landlords and, and the, uh, the wireless carriers. So we actually had rooftop rights and you know, helped bring in revenue both for the, the owners of those buildings and, and help the carriers get to their places they needed to be. Um, 
moving forward throughout time, um, I'm going to let Michael pick up here in a minute, but, you know, we, we maintained that network for a while. And then in the mid-2000s, Michael and I, or early 2000s, Michael and I got together and started thinking that we could expand upon this business, this wireless rooftop real estate business a little bit. So, Michael, I don't know if you want to fill in some of my holes or take over and, and give a little more color on it. Sure. So uh, my background's in real estate acquisitions and development. Paul's is in network engineering. Uh, we've known each other our whole lives. We, around 2008, when the world had uh, pretty much fallen apart economically in the uh, Great Recession, we decided it's a good time to get together and see if we can't do something together. And we grew uh, the portfolio of buildings that, we, that Paul's family had. And we realized that that business was really a hybrid of telecommunications and pure straight real estate. So we took, at the time was probably about 20 really taller buildings that were designed for, or intended for putting antennas there to talk wide area over large distances. And we expanded that to the point where we had about three, have about 3000 plus buildings that we're marketing today. Um, been through a couple iterations since then, but today we're now marketing uh, three, over 3,000 buildings to carriers, and we work with all major cell carriers, plus a lot of local and regional companies, such as wireless internet service providers, um, cable companies, two-way radio companies, uh, public safety, you name it. If they need to talk wirelessly and they need a place to put their antenna, uh, we, we work with them in New York. And now expanding to other markets as well. We've had a number of sites in the past in Philadelphia, as well as out in California. And we uh, just started this new rebranding under RCG Tower where we're looking to really take this to urban areas nationwide. So that's where we are today. That's cool. Oh, I, so I, as you know, I manage a lot of real estate, a lot of high rise buildings in Manhattan, the five boroughs. And I think the old thought would be, and this is years ago when it started was if the carriers are interested, they'll reach out to you. You know, as always, well, from a building's perspective, and this goes back like 15, 20 years even, you know, if they want a a cell tower on the roof, they're going to reach out to you. That was when I first started with this. And now it seems like it's changed out so that there's a marketing mechanism in place with you where we're putting our name in the ring as an address with you. You go out to the carriers and market it. Is it like a few times per year that you market it out or is it a continual basis? It's constantly every day. It's, yeah. It's talking. There's, there's always things evolving. The networks are always evolving. Uh, and so we're constantly talking to the, the folks that are making the decisions about where sites are being located on a daily basis. Right. And in terms of geographic locations, are there any benefits? You know, we have a lot of mid-block buildings. We have a lot of corner buildings. There's different, you know, uh, obviously there's population density. There's, are you near a park so that there's little lying areas near, you know, what are the things that from your perspective, if I'm sitting in a building, if I own a building or if I'm on a board and I have this real estate that, you know, we're operating, what, what are the things that the carriers are looking at as like a benefit to them that would make them want to come to our property? Sure. Uh, there's, there's two ways, there's a couple of ways to answer that question. The first main differentiator between lots of different types of buildings is height relative to the other buildings around it. So, and the difference is the tall midtown skyscraper, if you put an antenna on the top of that building, it's good for speaking out over large, long distances, you know, 20 miles in each direction or, or major right. regional plays. 
Whereas if you're a communications company and you're looking to serve Wi-Fi in a park, or you're looking to serve as a carrier, a quarter mile area or an intersection, you want to be at a, typically at a lower height building, two to 10 stories, somewhere in that range. And ideally corner buildings, yes, are better because you can typically get different, more clear uh, lines of sight in different directions off of right. a corner building than you can on a midlock building, midlock building. So it really depends on your location and the use. So I yeah. could have, cause uh, I have a building in Brooklyn that is like one building in from the corner. They have cell tower there. Oh no, they don't have cell tower there. I'm sorry. That building doesn't, but the building behind them on the block that we manage also on the block behind it in, in that same area has cell towers and they weren't interested. Well, it was a combination probably of the board didn't want, you know, uh, at that time, maybe cell service, but we did put it out there to market and it just didn't seem like it was an area that the, you know, the cell towers were flocking to. So it, it could be just a mixture of they already have the building behind them. They've got that covered and there's no immediate use. But one of the things that I have, I wouldn't say struggled with, but the conversations always lead to are the cell towers safe? You know, the people on the top floor, are they going to be worried about any sort of you know radiation or any sort of, anything that could come upon um, a cell tower. And I know from my experience, just having been up there, you know, there's always the signage, you know, it's probably OSHA compliant where it says, you know, do not stand within X feet of this for, you know, a period of longer than however, whatever's recommended. Um, so I think part of the challenge for us on those buildings that are leaning either way where they're offered a cell tower option is okay. Now we've got the offer. What do we do with it? How do we, and is there any science? I don't even think that there's ever been a report issued that it's unsafe. It's yeah. an unknown, right? I mean, it's not an unknown, but it's just not a, it's not a known. I, I, I'm not a scientist. I, I yeah. don't want to, I don't want to put out any facts that are not hundred percent true or that I'm not an yeah. expert in, but the science behind it is that this is safe. And two things to keep in mind is the power that these things generate, the energy that they put off drops off logarithmically with distance. So if you have your hand smack against the antenna and hold it there for a while, it's not radiation in the, uh, in the sense that it'll change the DNA, but it's, it's, it's microwave energy, which just warms things up. So your hand will get warm. Your yeah. body has the ability to cool itself off to a certain degree, as you know, you know, when it's a hot day out, you yeah. don't run hotter than 98.6, you're still 98.6. But certainly it's not something that you want to be in front of because you're running a fever, basically, if it's too much, if you're standing right next right. to it. If you drop off a foot away from it, it drop, the amount of energy getting there drops off exponentially. And this stuff is very highly regulated. And the, and, and the, you know, it's, the, it's all covered by government regulation. So I kind yeah. of leave it to them on that stuff. One of my fa funny it's, anecdotes is a building that I have in Queens. Yeah. And it's five buildings and they were approached and they said, no, um, they are the middle of two other bookend buildings. So there's seven buildings total. There's one building on the end. The other end has another building owned by the same uh, entity. And then they have the five in between. They said, no, the bookend building that they're attached to said yes. And now they're benefiting on probably $40,000 a year of income <laughs> and there's no drop off in location for them. Um, right. The other thing to keep in mind is yeah. these antennas are designed 
to face outward. And they're very highly engineered to be as efficient as possible so that the energy that's being broadcast is being gener generated outwards towards the front of the antenna and out to the street. What they don't want is energy going backwards. So the safest place to be would be, or I should say, with the la least amount of energy is when you're standing behind the, the antenna right. inside a building. That's, I'd rather be there than standing on the front of it being facing it. So you seems to see an antenna as, you know, radiating out in all directions. These are shaped, they're, they're designed specifically and engineered specifically to go away from the building. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Um, okay. So let's, let's pretend that you're marketing out a building for me. You come back and you say, okay, carrier X wants to put um, equipment on your roof. What are the typical timeframes and lease agreement uh, lengths of time that we would be, let's say, locked in with a T-Mobile or, you know, some other entity that wants space? Okay, so there's, there's a couple things going on. The first is that most of these networks, and there's one exception to this right now that's being built out, but most of the networks are fairly mature. And what I mean by that is they have a lot of sites already covering the area. And right now they are infilling and putting new sites in between other sites to handle either capacity issues or because they're changing the uh, frequencies of the bandwidth they're using, they need to they need things that are higher frequency uh, bandwidths don't travel as far wavelengths. So they, they need to infill those sites to cover those areas that they weren't covering with uh, high frequency bandwidth before. The, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> I was <laughs> asking, what, what's the general length of time that uh, we're so, gonna be into a lease? Right. The, these are fairly large investments in time and, 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 and dollars that they put onto a rooftop. The carriers are going to need to get a return on their investment over a extended period of time. Um, they, at some instances, they will ask for 45 years. Can you do it for less than that? Absolutely. But typically 25 years or more is where they're going to want to be there because it doesn't only impact this particular site. If they put this up and um, a couple of years later, you took it down, or you said this has to come down, it not only impacts this site, but all the sites surrounding it as well. Because they right. have to figure those, those, those sites as well. Because they're all engineered to talk to each other in a specific right. way. It's the architecture. Correct. The cells and, are all pieced together. And yeah. not and the more, most importantly, not interfere with each other. Right. right. So when we need to move for construction, you know, because obviously they're put on the roof, um, I would probably always recommend that the building's architect work in concert with the architect engineer of the um, mobile communications company so that we make sure when we are going to be doing work on the roof in the future. And if you're telling me that it's a 25 year plan, essentially, there will be a time over the next 25 years that any building is going to have to rework either the parapets or the roof deck or, you know, there's something, especially with all these local law 11 jobs coming up. So we want to make sure from an owner's perspective that, we have that covered and that we're not going to shoot ourselves in the foot for that local law 11 cycle in 10 years where we have to rebuild the parapet because it's an unsafe, you know, we want to make sure that it's structurally sound and in the interest of the building. Right. Absolutely. Um, and so the you, other, the yeah. other point of that is you always, these assets, unlike a, a, a cell tower built purposely built out in a rural area, these assets, the buildings, their primary focus and their intention was not as a communications tower or um, they are residential buildings, office buildings. And that 
one of our jobs is to make sure that those assets are their primary purpose, i.e. being a building that's serving as housing for people, is not impacted negatively by having cellular equipment up there. So yes, we always want to make sure that we plan in the lease the ability to maintain the buildings uh, appropriately. Right. We've that's been approached. That's an um, important difference. Yeah. We've been approached on some of our buildings where we, let's say we have this 25 year lease, right? They want to just buy out the lease. You know, a company wants to buy out the lease. They're long-term 90 years. It's a huge cash payout. So the building could be hundreds of thousands because we're talking about almost a hundred years, you know, in some cases or 50 years. Um, in those cases, do you recommend doing that? And I, I think part of the trepidation on the client side is, well, we're giving up this part of the roof for this long period of time. We know what the communication looks like today, but we don't know what the systems and what the throw off will be in the next 10 years. You know, obviously technology is changing so far and fast that we don't know what type of equipment they're going to want to put on the roof. And we don't know if we want to tie ourselves to an unknown like that. But from your perspective as the, the broker, the expert, like what, what do you see about those types of transactions? There's, there's merit to them. Uh, it's not for everyone. And you certainly want to make sure in those agreements, if you do decide to, to sell the revenue stream, that that document protects the building owner for future, in the future going forward. It's not just a short term, I get a big hit of money. But if you're in a financial need, it's a great way to raise revenue quickly uh, for an asset. Um, the other nice thing about doing it is, I, we, I, Paul and I, we, we can't tell you how many times we've seen networks come down uh, and sites decommission. So this is a way, these are long-term leases, but the carriers do often take sites down. Uh, networks go away. There's mergers. When you're the Sprint T-Mobile merger, a lot of Sprint sites will be uh, decommissioned. So if you had sold that site two, three years ago, five years ago, and set for a, a, a large multiple, and now it's gone, you're in the, you're in the plus side. You're, you're a win. And there's, there's no ever, there's, there's, you can't guarantee that you're going to have someone else come back up there in the future. So it's, it's a nice way of taking the risk off the table of a revenue stream that's not your primary revenue stream. It's an ancillary revenue stream that really is, is good times money. It could, it could disappear next year. There's always that risk. And using that money to invest in an asset for, for a future benefit that's your primary business. Um, once a psychic, let's, okay, let's pretend that I've sold out my rooftop for 50 years. I got a cash sum up front. They decommission. Am I then able to remarket it, or do they have the ex the exclusive rights uh, for the in fifty years? Then I can look at it. Or once they decommission, is it like fair game? It depends upon the document. Um, yeah, that's fair. It's it's what you negotiate it up front. And you bring up things, those are certainly things that you can talk to the person who's doing the buyout about. Yeah. Okay. And there, you bring up a good point about ancillary secondary income, because there's only a few ways that you can do that in a building. Realistically, you know, you've got like your laundry income, you've got the cell tower income. You, if you have a building that you could rent out space, you know, in terms of like party rooms, that's another, you know, ancillary income, a gym. Yeah, there's so few storage. That's not really, you know, 
this is a money maker. Those are more like keep the lights on and pay for the expense of the amenity. But this is the one of the few things that if you, I guess, market it right and get the right deal, it, it could really help a budget along versus just being a little bit of a trickle in on, you know, monthly income. That's in some cases, it's, it's like finding another apartment or two on an apartment building. And it, it is good times money. I mean, when you, when a landlord had, no longer has an apartment rented, it, it's, you know, something pro forma and, and, you know, considerable to the bottom line where this is, you know, this is good times money. It's, it's space not otherwise rentable. So it actually is, it's valuable in that regard. I think that's the big difference. And part of the fun of the job that we're in is we're, we're finding value and giving value to landlords for a, and something that is not an asset, but more of a liability. And in terms of the rooftop, it's, it was never intended to be a revenue generating portion of the building. So we're taking something that had little to no value and creating value out of it for landlords. Um, and that, that's, that's nice. It's a real win-win. I, what I don't know much about, and I don't know if this is a question for you or for somebody else, but you know, with the city going through all of the energy efficiency guidelines and um, benchmarks, for, especially for buildings that are like 25,000 square feet and over, they're monitoring every year now our electric use, our gas use, our uh, heating oil, uh, all of those th- water, all of those things are being recognized. And then we're putting that into the city's database. They're spitting out you know, a formula and then we've got an energy grid. By certain guidelines, we have to reduce over time our energy on certain buildings by like 80%. I just wonder um, in the makeups that you have with this for the energy that's thrown off, right? It takes energy to, to run the system. Um, are the utilities or let's say the uh, communication providers, are they completely covering those costs of electricity for their systems? And I wonder in the future, if they are, and I think they are, right, Paul? Well, it, it depends, on, entirely. depends yeah. on what, I'm sorry? It depends upon what your agreement says. Okay, so let's let's pretend two ways. One way we have the electric going up, the building's paying for the electric, but the offset would be they get the revenue and the revenue is gonna more than, you know, make that irrelevant. But where it's not gonna make it irrelevant is in the future when we've got these local law um, energy efficiency changes where we have to try to minimize our energy. So that's something that I'm just like thinking off the top of my head that we have to look at maybe in the future to see how that interacts with the building's energy usage. Is it throwing them off into another you know scale? Um, and then the other thing is if it's um, if it's not, then that's something that we don't really have to worry about. That's I haven't looked at the regs um, on that, but it's a good question. I can't imagine that there's look there's a lease associated with these with this stuff, so it would count as additional. I can't imagine that the city hasn't already taken that into account, considering how many cell sites are out there. Um, and if they haven't yet, that they certainly will once they be, you get into the phase where we have to reduce energy usage. Yeah, and as always, it'll probably only apply to non-city buildings. Because the city never make the city makes guidelines, but they never make their buildings, you know, applicable for that. All the uh, the city housing, they really don't have to abide by any of these initiatives. It's it's really interesting. Um. So, any oh, I one question that I had for you is: Are you seeing any trends in 
um, specific boroughs where, you know, other, where cell companies are like, are they cherry picking, you know, oh, okay, Brooklyn is like in this year, we need to bulk up in Brooklyn or in Queens or in Staten Island, like, or is it just all over the map? I think the, to what Michael said earlier, the maturation of these networks causes them to look at a couple of different things. They look at where they're having primarily capacity issues right now. And I think it's a shifting dynamic. If we look at, say, COVID right now, people are not so much in Midtown. They're working in apartment buildings at home. So there may be some shift towards bolstering up sites in the outer boroughs. But to the same point, there's still a lot of population density in, in, in Manhattan that's still there. And so they, they kind of look at where the trends are uh, in the network, but the, the maturation doesn't say, hey, hey, we're going to build up Queens right now because we haven't spent a lot of time focusing on it. Um, right. But obviously they do need to address when you have new areas, uh, uh, when you have density go up in an area, like Long Island City, for example, yeah. is an area that over the last 10 years is really the population there has grown significantly. They're going to have to put some more cell sites there along with that development. Right. Um, they have to follow the people all around to the suburbs. That was one of the big trends that we heard about was a lot of the capital that was intended for uh, the cities last year was redirected more towards suburban areas because of COVID. That was a temporary situation. And, and hopefully that's, that's uh, reversing now as things hopefully get back to normal. Yeah. From uh, an owner standpoint, is there anything that I can do to make my building more marketable? Or is it purely location-based? Work with someone, work with us uh, or someone like us. Uh, The difference is the carriers, you know, they, they, their RF engineers know where they want to have sites coming up over the next couple of years, where they have needs. And then the, the proverbial bean counters figure out how many sites, how much capital they can afford to put into that market at a given time. And and they will make their list of priority, what they call rings or search areas where they want to find a building. So instead of them going out and knocking on all the doors in a quarter mile area, you know, all 10, 10, 15, 20 buildings that are potential candidates. um, If you work, you know, the way we think we're valuable is we have, we work with the carriers say, these are the properties that we have landlords that are interested in this additional revenue from the top on down. This is where we can save you a lot of time of trying to find sites and negotiate deals. Because we already have agreements that have been pre-negotiated, it really saves a lot of time, which is very important for the carriers, and a lot of efforts. And we know what issues are important to building owners and carriers. Um, we can cut through a lot of the back and forth and get to an agreement quickly uh, and make sure that everyone's interests are covered and get it on your building as opposed to the building across the, across the street. Because once it's on the building across the street, it's not coming. You, you lose that opportunity. You really will lose that opportunity for the life of that network. And how does a company like yours get paid? Is it through um, a percentage? Is it through the um, you t- the company that's you know you're putting us together with? Is it out of pocket for the building? Is it out of pocket for the communications? Wait, what's the general the way of compensation? We take on a lot of work for both sides. We do a lot of. Um, we think we're a value add to to both sides, the carriers and the landlords. We want our interests aligned. Our interests are very much aligned with the landlords in that we will lease space on the rooftop then sublease it out to the carriers so that if there's any issues or that needs to be resolved over time, we handle them all. 
we don't, the, the building owner doesn't need to try to figure out who the right person to call is in a 10,000 person organization. Uh, they simply call us, we handle all the AP, all the AR, we oversee the installation, we make sure the deal is negotiated properly, make sure it's, it's, it's built according to the plan, make sure that they, they don't uh, change the installation over time and that they remain uh, within the lines of the lease. And what we do, we do this to make sure that we're aligned with landlords, we do this on our revenue share. So that we, the landlords know that we're incentivized to get them as good a deal as possible and that our risk concerns are completely aligned with theirs. So it's, it's, man, it's, it's the combination of finding the, the site as well as we don't leave a site or, or we don't step out of the picture uh, soon after the deal is consummated, but we are in there for the long run. So we want to make sure everything goes well and the relationships all stay positive. So even in 10 years, as we spoke about, I need to, I need to move that, um, like the dunnage off of the parapet so that I could actually do work. You're the, you're the go between with them so that I could do that effectively. And as a manager, I don't have to spend my wheel, my day, like in a wheel, a hamster wheel, trying to find the right person. It makes yeah, it easier. It makes it a lot easier. This is an extremely niche real estate, um, niche and <laughs> uh which you know most landlords really their best return on their time and money is to focus on what they know uh and this is something that you'd have to it, it really is so different from a typical real estate uh, structure that it, it's probably best to leave it to someone like us uh and that, and that's why we exist that's why we've been successful yeah. Well, it's helpful that you have the background of the acquisition side. So you know what it's like to be a landlord. You know what our pain points are. Absolutely. Paul and I both own property in, in the city. Um, yeah. We've been managing properties for years. We, we run a traditional real estate as well as other asset classes uh, outside of the city. So we understand it from a landlord's perspective, what they really do need and care about. Yeah. Where do you see the market going in the next few years? Like, what are the things that are interesting to you. They may not be interesting to me, but they may be interesting to you. <laughs> That's what I always say. Well, I think, you know, recently and, and probably for the next couple of years, the, the exciting news that we're working on right now is that with the, um, <laughs> the, the Sprint T-Mobile merger, um, one of the stipulations for, for getting that done was um, see, uh, Sprint had to take the Boost Mobile network and seed dish as another carrier um, so we have what doesn't happen very often in the industry we have a brand new greenfield cellular network build going on that's just getting started right now um, which is exciting for for us because it's exactly what we look forward to it's really exciting for landlords who are looking to get some revenue on yeah. the rooftops with with the business that we do so you know it's kind of one of those things with you know there's, there's nice movement all along, always some nice steady growth in this industry, with the, even with those mature networks and those smaller carriers we spoke about. But this is one of those times where, you know, you really see that, see that hockey step rise um, with, with lease up. So we're really excited to be working uh, with DISH and with our landlords on that project. So I know that you guys deal with the external carriers. Are you at all, and it's fine totally if you're not, but I just never asked you this. Are you dealing with internal building like Wi-Fi, high-speed communication that comes directly from satellite to the roof and then it's distributed internally? 
Have you done any of that? Yeah, yes, we have. Um, it's from our perspective, uh, wireless communications, whatever form it's in, it, it's all related. So we understand this stuff pretty intimately. Uh, we didn't touch on this, but the way that Paul and I actually met originally is our parents are all ham radio operators. Oh, so really? they, were talking, they were talking to each other over ham radio on the way, you know, picking us up from school and stuff in, in, that's the, funny. Uh, in the afternoons. Uh, so whether it's two-way radio that's in building, uh, um, Paul's family's been designing these networks for for the better part of 50 years uh, in one of the most complex RF environments in the country, being the world, being New York. We, we, we understand this stuff from not just from a real estate standpoint, but from the uh, technology standpoint of it. And because of that, I've been asked to get involved in a lot of in-building stuff over the years, be it, again, old-fashioned two-way radio internally in that building for um, the back of house to be able to talk to each other, to we do, we've worked with a number of the cable companies on helping them to penetrate and get into buildings, to working with landlords on ways to provide, and, and also customers, to provide better broadband access to uh, the tenants of the buildings, uh, be it DAS or be it a um, just a, a straight uh, wired installation inside the building. Yeah, because that's I, I saw that kind of trickle up a little bit a few years ago and then it slowed down. Um, I think it was a novelty for a, a little while to have like a mesh network inside the building where you'd have Wi-Fi and everybody could hop on it. But then now you've got Fios coming in everywhere. You've got Time Warner or Charter. I mean, there, there's a lot of options. So I think that- see more of it. That's, that's not going away. You don't think uh, so? There are, there, are, there are some new market entrants that are looking to really uh, compete with the cable incumbents in bringing broadband to residential and office tenants in the buildings. And, and I think COVID really early on, everyone saw the need for, hey, I've got all these residents who are now sitting in these buildings trying to work, turn their yeah. apartments into offices, making sure that they have the broadband connectivity that they need uh, in order to do their jobs has was something that very early on was, was a, a need that was addressed or was focused yeah. on. I mean, right now we're doing this on Zoom. You know, we haven't gotten back to in-person and this is just one of a million things like this going on across, you know, our buildings. So this is, I mean, it's a high network time, but it's very interesting. Um, it's really quite unique. Michael and I have always talked about this, this trend in, especially in the residential areas in the city, when, you know, pre-COVID you would see, you know, in the middle of the day in, in the apartment buildings, you'd see relatively low usage of internet. And then at three o'clock, kids would get home, they get on the Wi-Fi, they get on Xboxes, things like that. You'd see that usage go up and you would see latency start to, to rise in the network in those areas. Now we've had to, we've had to bolt, oh, the networks have had to bolster up those areas to right. support people being at home doing exactly what we're doing right now on a Zoom call. Yeah, I mean, as a, Michael and you both probably, Paul too, but you know, we spent a, an inordinate amount of time ensuring that there's proper hot water at certain times, that there's heat at certain times. And maybe the next wave of normal maintenance will be making sure that there's Wi-Fi at certain times and making sure that those networks are capable, that your building is wired effectively. And, you know, we're 
we're shifting from an old school mentality, even though we've been doing this for 20 years, but we're still operating a lot of these buildings like it's 1980 where technology doesn't exist. You know, it's it's coming up to the, the breaking point is here. And well, I think that this is the next step of that. I think the big difference though, is unlike hot water or heat, where really you've got one boiler that's providing it for the entire building. With most buildings, the carriers have done a really pretty good job, in my opinion, of making sure there's pretty good connectivity within most buildings in the five boroughs uh, and halfway decent internet service. So you, you've got a lot of, most buildings or a good number of buildings have more than one service provider in there. So unlike having one boiler, you've got several cable companies and maybe some overlay companies as well serving that building so that if if, if one company is not providing good service, the tenants in that building are going to jump over to that other ca- other provider pretty quickly. And, yeah. and, the, and the first company knows that. So you've got the benefit of competition really right. working in the tenant's favor or the resident's favor in those buildings. Unlike when you only have one boiler. True. And, if it decides and also that- you only have one, one set of pipes to go up to each apartment. You know, some of the interesting things that have happened with the technology in the space even pre-COVID is that the existing copper infrastructure can actually be leveraged for faster connectivity now than five years ago. So, you know, it, it's granted the copper's got to be decent quality in the building. It can't be broken or, or, yeah. or waterlogged, but, you know, they're, they, it, there's the ability to bring in some significant speeds over existing infrastructure in these buildings. Well, let me redirect everybody to, I learned a lot today. So hopefully everybody listening learned something too. Um, I'll redirect them, everybody to your website. And I'll also put it in, if you go to the description of the podcast, it's rcgtower.com. And if you wanted to reach out by phone, you could reach them at 646-300-9011. Again, if you want to reach out to the show, it's NYC real estate podcast at gmail.com. NYC real estate podcast at gmail.com. All that information is also going to be in the description of the podcast. So feel free to uh, pause and, and go down there and I'll link to uh, the RCG website and I'll put the number there. Um, but I, Michael and Paul, this has been super informative for me. I love learning new things and um, I want to thank you guys for coming on and hopefully we can chat again. Thanks Mark. Thank you Mark. You do a great job with these. It's always fun to listen to them. (laughs) Well, thank you. Well, keep listening. Keep sharing.